class this morning, and I was concerned about that because I know, as Daniel said, the flu is going around, and there are other things, and there's uh, probably lots of people who are dealing with sickness, but then I see that we have several more who've turned up, and I'm certainly glad that you're here. I hope the time we spend here together today will be beneficial and uplifting and strengthening for all of us. You know, our society values youth and youthfulness above just about anything else. And consequently, it seems sometimes that we become almost obsessed with the idea of aging and how we might reverse that process, even with things that are, are perfectly natural and inevitable. It's like a, a fellow who went to the doctor, and he was concerned about, well, the skin on his arm was just not as well-toned as it used to be. He would see this flabbiness, you know, he'd shake up his shaving cream in the morning, and he'd see his arm just sort of jiggling there, and he asked the doctor, wasn't there anything that he could do about that? And the doctor said, yes, absolutely, there's a remedy for that. What is it? Close your eyes. That man, incidentally, was my father. <laughs> And since, <laughs> since then, uh, he's switched to a shaving brush, and I don't know if those two things are related or, or not. I'll have to ask him about that. But sometimes we hear now that life begins at 40, or we hear that uh, 50 is the new 40, or 60 is the new 50, and for those of you in the audience this morning who've passed those milestones and left them in the rearview mirror, you might find those claims to be a little bit dubious. I mean, life may begin at 40, but so do uh, fallen arches and sciatica and bad eyesight and telling the same story three or four times. Your old classmates become so gray and wrinkled and bald that they don't recognize you anymore. And yet, we turn to the pages of Scripture and we find this reading in Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 10. God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses is the man being addressed here, and with a surprise that's perfectly natural, Moses essentially says, who? Me? Are you talking to me? Are you sure about that? I mean, really think about this picture. Imagine that you were standing here witnessing a shepherd going out with his flocks that day. And say you're witnessing the scene and you turn to somebody standing nearby and you say, who, who is that old fellow over there? And he'd probably say something like, oh, him? He's just a shepherd. His only real distinction, actually, is that his father-in-law, Jethro, is one of the leading citizens there in the community. Moses isn't a man of any sort of distinction himself at this point. Our friend here might have gone on with the story. You know, he came here several years ago now, and he caused quite a, mo quite a commotion when he arrived. The rumor had it that he'd been somebody important when he came from, and we thought that he really might turn into something, but all he's done for the last 40 years is take care of another man's sheep. It's pretty clear that's all he's ever going to do. He's 80 years old now. He's never going to amount to anything. Now, if we had been there with the advantage of foreknowledge, we could have said, you're dead wrong. 
this same man who's leading a flock of sheep is going to be leading a very different flock tomorrow. And armed with nothing but a shepherd's crook in his hand and God in his heart, he's going to invade Egypt, the mightiest nation in the world, and he's going to be responsible for the birth of a new nation. And I imagine our friend would have said, him? That guy? (laughs) No way. And if we think about it logically, not knowing the rest of the story, That's the obvious way to look at things. Reason and logic are not on Moses' side. In fact, Moses had three great strikes against him, at least. In the first place, we don't expect anything of Moses at this point because he's now an old man. Revolutions are fomented by the young. We certainly don't expect their leaders to be those who've already reached their their four-score years. Now, I think, unfortunately, in our contemporary society, we don't give our elders the proper respect that we should. Uh, We don't give them the respect, certainly, that they received in biblical times, in ancient times, but we don't even give them the respect that they received at other points in our own nation's history. So often, young people view older people as just a burden, something that just needs to be pushed out of the way as quickly as possible. And I think that that could be a reason why a lot of people fear getting older. But even with that said, we do recognize that as we get older, the years take something away from us. Our minds start to write checks that our bodies can't cash. When a person's pushing 70, that's exercise enough. As the writer of Ecclesiastes puts it, he speaks of the aged and he says that they are afraid of what is high. So maybe that's one form of exercise. They exercise caution as they get older. And in fact, we know that as we age, we're probably less likely to take risk, less likely to do things that are adventurous and daring that we did when we were younger. Those advancing years have a way of stealing our strength. And in fact, I'll tell this, I'm not sure if I've told this story before, which maybe that's a sign of it catching up with me here. But at any rate, I recall this was the year we got married. Before we got married, I was still, I was 29. And I was playing softball with some friends of ours one evening, and I hadn't done anything like that in a while, but I'd done it a lot before. And we were just sort of warming up there in the beginning. I was standing in the outfield and shagging some fly balls, and there was a ball hit considerably in front of me. Well, I have a pretty good idea of how to gauge this, and I know my own speed, and so I start to sort of trot up towards it, and I realize about halfway there I'm not going fast enough. I'm not going to get there. And so I start to pick up the pace, and knowing my speed, and for you know, uh, elite athletes, I wasn't f- ever fast, but for normal humans, I was, I was pretty fast. I played wide receiver in high school. I could sprint pretty well. And so I start running to the ball, and I realize that I'm not going to get there. It felt like my ankles were weighted down with concrete, and I'm thinking to myself, I used to be fast. What's wrong? And I got there just as the ball dropped, you know, about three feet in front of me, picked it up and threw it back in. And of course, as I say, I was only 29 years old then, but I don't sprint on a regular basis. I'd lost some speed, and I didn't have any way to gauge that, and I'm sure now it would be even comparatively worse. 
One of the surest signs of senility is when some fellow 55 or 60 years old says that he's just as good now as he was 30 years ago. That's not true. You can be sure that the calendar's already caught up with him at that point if he actually believes that. As the years pass, no matter how old we are, we're just not as strong as we were when we were in peak physical condition. That's just a fact of life. But even with all of that said, old age is not the tragedy that Madison Avenue would make it out to be. You know, our society attempts to convince us that childhood, youth, that's the pinnacle of life, and we really focus on that key 18 to 35-year-old demographic, and then once you pass over that, well, it's pretty much a wasteland that you have to endure until you finally pass from this world. But that's not really the way that it is. And I would think, I, I would hope at least, that most of us around this room could go and attest to the fact that childhood, youth, those aren't the only parts of life worth living. I actually feel sorry when I occasionally hear people say that the best years of their life were in high school. You couldn't pay me enough to go back to high school. The best things are still out in front of you there at that point. The point is Moses can testify to that too. Here is a man for whom life begins at 80. His most adventurous years, his most useful years were his sunset years. Life begins any time a person has a personal encounter with God and puts himself or herself completely into his hands. You hear me? Life begins when someone encounters God and places themselves in God's hands. And that's what Moses did. But we don't expect very much from Moses, not only because he's old, but secondly, because he's found a kind of security. Moses doesn't have any fear of losing his position. He doesn't worry about an advancing workforce or reductions in employment pushing him into retirement. He doesn't have to face that as a shepherd. In fact, his position only promises to get better as the years go on. In fact, you know, pretty soon his father-in-law is not going to be there anymore. And then he'll rise up to his position. He'll be one of the important people in the community. But of course, with that sort of security comes complacency. You get comfortable. The chances are slim that you'll ever change in any way. So we don't expect very much of Moses because he's old and he's secure. But thirdly, maybe most importantly, because he is an old failure. The very mission that God is calling him for now is the one that he'd fumbled so spectacularly in his youth. See, there was a time when Moses was an exciting personality. He'd risen up from a slave's hut to the palace. He'd gone from being a, a nobody to being very much a somebody. He had the position and the power to help his people. And we don't know this, but I imagine that for those who knew his story, there were probably thousands of eyes who looked to him as a source of hope. When Pharaoh's daughter made that decision to take him up out of the river that day and to adopt him as her own, she made three important determinations there. She determined that that baby would not be put to death. That guaranteed his life. She determined that 
he would be adopted as her own that guaranteed him the best opportunities. But she also determined that his mother would be the one who'd be his nurse. She didn't know that at the time. But that guaranteed Moses' faith and his character. So when baby Moses was hidden away for three months so that he might live, that was a testament to the faith of his parents. But when Moses, when he'd grown to be a man, as the Hebrews writer says, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, that was a testimony to his own faith and his own character that had been instilled in him by his mother. And so the day came when he visited his people and he struck a blow on their behalf. He'd seen an Egyptian bullying, lording it over one of his people. And so he went and he intervened and he struck the man and I don't know if he intended to kill him or not, but he did. And whether or not he intended to kill him, he certainly didn't seem to be too distressed over that fact, at least in the moment. And I say that because he went and he intervened with a couple of his countrymen right after that. He thought that he would be welcomed as some sort of hero had they known about this. But of course, they resented his interference. One of them said to him, who made you to be a judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? That took Moses aback because that meant his secret wasn't a secret. But also, this fellow Israelite hadn't appreciated the sacrifice that he'd made at all. He resented him, in fact. And so he took to his heels and he ran. And he ran to Midian. And for 40 years at this point, he's been running. This is the man who's now chosen by God to be the leader of the emancipation of Israel. How did this happen? How does this come about? Well, the first move is on the part of God. One day, Moses is out working, and he glances up on the mountainside, and he sees a bush that's burning. It's on fire. Well, I imagine he didn't think anything too much about it at the moment. That in itself was probably all not, all not that unusual. He returns to his work, and then pretty soon he looks back up there again, and he realizes that that bush that should have burned down to nothing by now, it's still there, burning just as bright, just as hot as before. That's obviously unusual. That piqued his interest. And so he decided to walk up there and to see what was going on. And as you know, it was through that bush that God called Moses and that God spoke to Moses that day. You see, that bush said to Moses, metaphorically, that he once burned that way. He once blazed brightly. He once had that heat within his heart. He was blazing with enthusiasm for what was right. He was blazing with anger against injustice and what was wrong. But that fire that once burned had now dwindled down to gray ash. It was just a a few embers, if anything. It had basically gone out. Can we relate to that? The fire of our enthusiasm goes out. For once we've been on fire, burning hot for God, and now there's just a a few 
embers, mostly ashes there. You see, this bush confronts Moses with a question. Why did your fire go out? And maybe the better way to ask that is, why does the bush continue to burn? Why did the bush burn and yet it was not consumed? Because God was in it. God was the source of that fire in the bush. That's the very thing Moses lacked. You see, when Moses went out in his self-assurance and struck that blow, what he thought was for the liberation of his people, he went and did that all out of his own power, of his own confidence. He thought that was the way that he needed to proceed. And he failed. And then he gave up. He threw in the towel and he ran away. He didn't have any staying power. Why? Because God wasn't in it. He was trusting in himself and in his own power and in his own wit and his own wisdom instead of trusting in God. But you see, in all this, there's a word of hope. Even if your fire goes out, it doesn't have to stay out. We can still blaze. We can still burn. That fire that once burned within us can be rekindled again. If you've lost that first glow of enthusiasm, you can burn just as brightly and just as hot as you did before. That fire that burned in your youth can be rekindled even in old age. That's what the bush tells Moses, and we see that lived out in Moses' life. You see, the point is we don't have to remain as we are. We don't have to remain lackluster. We don't have to be lackadaisical. We don't have to be listless. We don't have to dwell on the fact that maybe we think our best years are behind us. We don't have to dwell on our failures in our life. As a church, we don't need to look back and think about the way things were 20, 30 years ago, whatever. Think about those as the good old days our best days can still be in front of us. But the whole point of this, we can glow, we can blaze, we can burn. But if and only if God is within us and God is with us and we give him a chance to work in us and to work through us. That's what Moses is being called here to do. God says to Moses there in verse number 10, come, I'll send you to Pharaoh. And Moses is just as shocked as you or I would have been in his shoes at this point in his life. And so he says in verse number 11, essentially, who, me? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said to him, but I will be with you. Moses, it's not a question of who you are. It's a question of who I am. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter about your past failures. Put yourself in my hands, and I'll take care of it. I will be with you, God says. So the story in a nutshell, we remember this. Moses obeyed, and ultimately... He triumphed. God gave him the victory. But the question is, why and how did Moses triumph? 
Well, it wasn't because it was easy. He faced any and all kinds of opposition. There was the direct opposition from a despotic king from Pharaoh. There was the internal opposition he felt from his own gnawing self-doubt. But of course, probably his greatest source of opposition was from his friends, his countrymen, the Israelites. They were a cantankerous bunch of whiners. They were the biggest hindrance that he had. But in spite of all that, Moses was successful, and he succeeded because nothing could make him quit. He endured, he persevered, and he did that because he trusted God, that God really was with him, as he said. People opposed him, but he endured. People said, you can't do it, but he endured. People rejected his leadership. They questioned him, but he endured. People rebelled against him, and they must have broken his heart, but he endured. And he endured because of his faith, his trust in God. Nothing can defeat us. Nothing can hinder us. Nothing can stop us if we endure in our faith, in our trust in God. But if we fail to endure and we try to go do it ourselves, the way Moses did in his youth, then nothing ultimately can bring us victory. Now we come back from that distant day, 3,500-ish years ago, to our own. And God says to us, come, I'll send you to Pharaoh. God doesn't literally say that to us. I don't expect that any of us will be called to go and to, to stare down an Egyptian king. But God does call us into his service. He asks us to do things. And we may still face resistance in doing that, just like Moses did. Not a Pharaoh. But we may face opponents. We may face an internal battle. We may face opposition even like he did from our own family and our friends and our co-workers. Maybe even, hopefully not, but maybe even from our brothers and sisters in Christ. But God says to us, he will be with us. And if we trust in him, he'll take us and he'll use us to bring about his purpose and to glorify his name. So what about you this morning? Maybe God is calling you to become a Christian. And if you haven't done that, I urge you to obey his voice this morning. Put your faith, your trust in him the way that Moses did. Turn to God in repentance, no matter what your past failure is. Be buried in the waters of baptism. Identify with Jesus Christ, your Savior there. Have your sins washed away. Be added to God's people and begin to go live that life of service to him. Maybe you're here this morning and you already are a Christian. Is the voice of the Lord calling to you today to rekindle those fires of enthusiasm that once burned so hotly within you, but now they've, they've faded away? Well, I don't care how old you are, and I don't care what failures you have in your past. Moses reminds us that it's never too late to burn again. 
whatever your need may be this morning, if you need to listen to that voice calling to you today and you need to respond, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.